Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're talking Southern food with James Beard award-winning chef Sean Brock. He's the founding chef of the acclaimed Husk restaurants in Charleston and Nashville, and he first became known for applying modernist cooking techniques to traditional Southern ingredients and dishes. His distinctive style was captured in his best-selling cookbook, Heritage, which won the IACP Award for Best First Cookbook. While taking time off from restaurants to focus on his health, Sean wrote his latest book, South, which focuses on regional ingredients and dishes, following his passion for understanding the unique foodways of the area and documenting them in maps, photos, stories, and recipes. He's in conversation with Seattle-based film producer, interviewer, and educator Warren Etheridge. Their discussion was recorded in front of a live audience at Seattle's Fremont Abbey on November 4th, 2019. Here's Sean Brock and South. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. This is amazing. So my first book tour, I had one request, and that was to come to Seattle because I'd never been. I don't know what happened. It didn't happen. And so on this book tour, I said, I'm not doing a book tour unless we go to Seattle. <laughs> I want to start with just a very quick little story. I was on the plane the other day with my advanced review copy of South, and I put it down, and the woman next to me said, are you Sean Brock? (laughs) Based on this tiny photo. (laughs) And, And I had this moment of trying to decide, do I milk this for all I can? But I don't Please think it'll do last long. Please do next time. And I said, no, no, no I'm just, I'm, I'm preparing for an interview. And she said, well, my husband's from Alabama, and I don't know what it is about Southern food. If I even look at the food his family serves, I get fat. <laughs> butter and lard, butter and lard, butter and lard. Is her conception of Southern food totally wrong? It's interesting. This is my 12th stop on this tour. And that's one of the main questions that I get is, you know, what are the misconceptions around Southern food? The more I answer it, the more I think about it, the more I realize that every cuisine has unhealthy dishes. Every culture has, you know, different things that they, you know, save for celebrations or special occasions. I think a couple things. One, I think our iconic dishes happen to be not the healthiest dishes (laughs) because they're so amazingly delicious. (laughs) But I think Southern food changed a lot after we started breeding and genetic engineering for convenience and not flavor. What I mean by that is, in the very beginning, the food of the South was extremely vibrant and delicious and nutritious and very, very, very vegetable-driven. When those land race varietals naturally come with that deliciousness, and, you, and you're born into eating that, and you're used to eating that, and then when we start to change that, when you eat a bowl of rice and, and peas, and it tastes like nothing, you're left wanting. And so if there aren't better versions of rice or peas available, you put bacon in there, or you put something to fill that gap. And so I think for the longest time, I mean, geez, if you start thinking about it, it was from probably 1930 until now. You know, we we bred a lot of the flavor out. So now that's what a lot of this book is about, is we are now finally getting to the point where we're bringing these things back, and they're vibrant and delicious again and full of nutrition, and we don't have to 
to season them heavily with um, dairy or, or, or pork or, or whatever. I'm curious because the idea of the book on some level is this idea of reviving Southern cooking or reintroducing it. But what exactly are we reintroducing it? Is it the, the products themselves, right, that make the, the dishes? Or is it the style of cooking? Or is it what actually appears on the plate? Because what you make, like a chilled summer squash soup, is not what we normally associate with the South. So it's this idea that there's a story that needs to be told, a story of lessons learned and wisdom and mistakes and triumphs. And these stories help hold the culture together. These stories teach us so much and they allow us to stay connected as communities. And those ingredients and those dishes and those traditions carry those stories. So when you're eating those dishes, you're reminded of why they're there, how they got there. That was really my main focus when I opened Husk and created that idea was we can't serve balsamic vinegar or extra virgin olive oil from Italy because then people start talking about balsamic vinegar and they start talking about Italy. And so I think that one of the great gifts of cooking and having a restaurant is to be able to continue that narrative and continue that storytelling so that those generations and generations of wisdom don't just get swept under the rug. And you're doing a lot to bring that back in lots of ways. And it starts with, with seeds, really, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, the seeds, for me, it didn't really hit me that seed saving was a thing until, I don't know, probably 2006 or seven. It was just a way of life for me. It's just what my grandmother did and my mother did. And we saved seeds because we were like borderline addicted to that flavor and craved that flavor of those particular varietals. That becomes a sense of communal pride. I remember very distinctly being a kid and sitting on the porch, snapping peas and beans, and my grandparents would be talking trash about the neighbor's beans, like, they don't know how to grow beans. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bean, you know? It was like, that's really awesome um, that the food of, of that region was so unique and it was so unique to a family. I don't know, that's how we keep these things alive, I think. It's so interesting that you've become sort of an icon of this movement to, to save Southern cuisine. But by your own admission, when you first went to uh, Charleston, I believe, you talked about wanting to hide your roots. You, you tried to, to get rid of your accent, and you were a little bit of ashamed of your, your background. When did, when did it change from being ashamed to you embracing your roots? Here's how bad my accent was when I was, like, <laughs> 13. I moved from rural coal mining town in Virginia that I came from to West Virginia and they made fun of my accent in West Virginia. <laughs> like if you need a translator in West Virginia and you got something to say, you need people to hear you. That's so funny. Can, can you still call it up? Back when I was drinking half bottle of whiskey a day, yes, it would just happen. <laughs> Um, so I don't know, there's some of that stuff on TV you could probably <laughs> um, Now it's so interesting because I hear that from a lot of people where I'm from, so many people actually, and it's a shame. It really is a shame. Um, we should never be feel that way about where we're from or how what our dialect is. But the South itself, I think, for the longest time, I mean, it even started with like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, and if you've ever looked back at the original Mountain Dew ads, 
and all these things, it was just characterized as this this culture of people who lived so far back in the woods. They had no education and no... I moved, when I moved to Charleston, which probably to someone who's not from the South, doesn't seem like much of a difference between those cities, but completely different. And completely different cuisine, completely different everything. I spent probably, I guess, a few years going to school there, uh, working in kitchens, and then I moved to Richmond, uh, Virginia, which, which I think is kind of like where the South starts mm-hmm. or ends, depending on which way you're going. And being back in Virginia, working in a restaurant that had so much pride in the country hams of Virginia and the oysters of Virginia, and I started to see like this, this sense of pride that came along with a place that I was from, even though the cuisine was so different, that all of a sudden it felt different. The cooking felt different for me. Um, I think that's really was my first um, moment of, of experiencing that. Is there somebody that that really you feel turned that for you, like Bill at Crook's Corner, or is there somebody John Edgerton, somebody who who made you feel like this is this is legit? I owe so much to the Southern Foodways Alliance. When I discovered who John Edgerton was, I was in culinary school, and his book Southern Food was in the library there. And I did a, my final project on, on barbecue, and I used a lot of that book. I actually stole so much out of that book. I mean, like blatantly, <laughs> word for word. This is way before you could track any of that stuff. <laughs> and I felt so guilty about it. The first time I met him, I had to tell him. I had to get it you off did? my chest. <laughs> but it was, I would say the answer to that question is, the Southern Foodways Alliance as an organization. The first time I went to dinner hosted by them and I was surrounded by these legends of, of Southern cuisine and got to sit and listen to lectures about the history and the traditions and the seed saving, my mind was blown. I think of Southern cooking as sort of uh, similar to jazz and in, in two things that America has really contributed in both those fields, music and food. Uh, but it doesn't, hasn't gotten the respect that it deserves as being uh, true to our country. Why is that? It's, it's what we touched on earlier. If your place has incredible tradition and it has all these, these, these stories and it has all this deliciousness in its past, and then you talk about it, you read about it, but then if you go to a restaurant and eat it, and it tastes like nothing, and all that's gone, goes away. And that happened to me when I was uh, 18 or 19 in Charleston. I was researching low country cooking, and I kept reading about Hoppin' John over and over and over again. I sat down and ate it at a restaurant, a very nice restaurant. Couldn't figure out why everybody was so obsessed with something that tasted so bad. <laughs> it tasted like nothing. I mean, it was like cafeteria at high school. So that was really a very confusing, I actually wrote about it in the first book, it was a very confusing moment for me. And then I tasted Carolina gold rice and Sea Island red peas in a bowl together, and it was a revelation. And then my career path changed and my thinking changed. That's, that's what has to happen, and, and that's what's gonna happen. You know, we're at a point now where my advice to cooks in the South is just, just keep executing. It will, it will show up. And, People will start to taste it. You know, don't get discouraged. Just execute. And, and the future will, will show what a special cuisine it is. 
all the stuff in here is very approachable, which I like. It feels like I can actually, I can actually tackle anything in this book, and you're very kind to uh, list resources about how to get some of the, uh, the products that we may not, uh, some of the ingredients we may not normally have at our fingertips. But you point out very confidently that the key to Southern cuisine uh, is to eat it hyper-seasonally. So what are we to do here in the Northwest? So I used to be really very, very, very hell-bent on the idea that, that Southern food had to be eaten in that place with those ingredients from that soil and from those waters. And I think that was just part of my evolution. It was, it was kind of the universe pushing me in that direction to, to get some of the work done that needed to be done. But now I understand that Southern cooking, Southern food, Southern cuisine, it's really more about um, a feeling. It's more about cooking with the intent to evoke an emotion. It's like cooking to make somebody feel something rather than just feed them. That's what I think of when I think of Southern cooking. If you're cooking with that intent and you're using these traditions respectfully, and if you are thinking about and telling the story of how that food got there, I don't care where you're cooking it. I don't care where you're eating it. Because what we have to do is we have to discuss these things. And there's so many difficult things that need to be discussed. Southern food was built on the, on the back, backs of slaves. And I think about that every time I eat a bowl of Hop and John or serve a bowl of Hop and John. And I think everybody else should also be thinking about that. And that should be discussion at the table. And that just happened in the South. That's not fast enough. We need to include this part of the dialogue. And we need to be thinking about these things. A lot of, a lot of really bad things happen for us to be able to to taste that Hoppin' John and be a snob about whether it's delicious or not. Well, it came to the right place for a table to talk about politics and, and the history of this country, so <laughs> welcome to Seattle. Uh, <laughs> but you, you strike me potentially as a little bit obsessive about no. things. <laughs> just, a, just, a, just a wee bit. <laughs> and, and so for like three quarters of the book, I'm feeling good, I'm gonna make some of these things, and then I get, I get towards the end there, and now you've got recipes for making your own butter and vinegar and, and God forbid, make your own bologna. I don't have to go that far. I can just buy some butter at the store, can I? <laughs> Please? <laughs> so, you know, I think it's what makes you happy. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised if you tried to make your own butter and how easy it was and how rewarding it was. And that's what I'm trying to do is just encourage people. You know, not preach or anything, just, just encourage people to try making these things from, from scratch. Because when I created Husk and, and decided that we'd only use Southern ingredients, I had to learn how to make all these things. I had to learn how to determine what varietals of wheat would grow and how to mill them so that I would have flour and how to make vinegar and how to make balsamic vinegar and how to make butter and so on and so forth. And it's a lot easier than it sounds. And it's worth it. Yay! <laughs> Something that you point out, which I, I find fascinating, uh, is that we tend, especially a Yankee like me, think of Southern cuisine as sort of monolithic, but it certainly isn't. It's no more one cuisine than saying that continental Europe is one cuisine. But you can break it down into some distinct regions. Pick your favorite. <laughs> well, if you open up your books to page 11, um, we'll like be singing church. a hymn right yes. now. <laughs> we gathered here today to sing the praises of country ham. <laughs> Look at this illustration. When you break off the South 
and pretend it's its own country, which it kind of is. But so is Texas. <laughs> it's, it's been trying for a long time. <laughs> awesome. Um, but look at it beside Western Europe. That's kind of crazy. And think about where your brain goes when you think about the cuisine of Western Europe. It's not one thing. It's a lot of different things. And, and this illustration really helped me understand something really, really important. And that's that I know nothing about Southern food. I don't want to be the expert on Southern food. I don't have any desire to do that. I, I'm proud to say I don't know anything about Southern food because most of it hasn't been discovered. Most of these traditions are either undiscovered or haven't even been born yet. If you think about how young we are as a country, it's very, and you start comparing it to other places. In 2026, we'll be 250 years old. That's nothing. How old is Paris? 2,000 years old. How old was uh, Modena when they decided to make the world's best balsamic vinegar? I mean, I don't know, I wish I knew, but I guarantee you it wasn't right out of the gates. And so there's so much more to be discovered. There's so many more regions to be identified. There's, there's so many more traditions to be born. To me, that's so exciting. I have a lifetime of discovery ahead of me. My favorite region, the one that's not discovered. Uh, well played. Well played. <laughs> but you, you are on an active quest to find the, the producers, the farmers, uh, anyone you can. And, and do, they, do people come seek you out? Or do you actually just hit the road? Well, it started out as a, as a very lonely journey. There weren't a lot of farmers working with chefs, period, much less working with chefs who had a handful of seeds that they need, needed to be saved and brought back into production. And what that means for a farmer is, let's say this book is your, is your acreage. Mm -hmm. Every tiny little square inch of that has to produce revenue. That's how you, so you feed your family. So if I'm asking you to, to take up this piece just to save seeds, but I'm not going to buy the produce from you, the produce has to dry and cure to get the seeds, it's really, really hard, and it's almost difficult to ask someone to do that. And so it's taken a while to find the farmers with the land, but also with the right soil and the right agricultural practices to take care of these very, very valuable seeds. Um, but it's, it's gotten so much easier and so much better. And now, yeah, it's a lot of people contacting me and a lot of people sending me seeds from their family and farmers contacting me saying, man, this is, I've got room. What do you want to grow? That's really amazing. And it's inspired me to build a seed bank at the new restaurant. We've designed the parking lot of the restaurant to, to have areas where we can put up um, tents and have seed swaps a few times a year. And so people can come from wherever you are. And so you can even set up your, a table and and, and trade seeds and trade stories. And I think those communal activities are, are critical. And keeping communities connected and keeping a culture alive. I want to see if this is true, because I read something in the book that I did not know, and I'm not talking about just a recipe. I'm talking about a food item that I had never heard of. Does anybody in the audience know what a pawpaw is? North America's largest indigenous fruit. And you mentioned it. I have no idea what it looks like. Well, it looks like a mango. But it tastes like a mashup, like a hillbilly mashup of papaya and banana. It's like this crazy tropical fruit that grows in the mountains of, of Appalachia. It's wild. When I was 18 and cooking in kitchens in South Carolina, I would talk about these things, especially pawpaws. And no one would have any idea what I was talking about. 
that was one of the things that really started to help me realize how special and unique the food of my family was and of my region. And so every time I would go home, I would bring a bag of pawpaws back. And then we would just like have these show and these, these Appalachian show and tells. Um, <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was so cool. Like you, you get to see someone experience something for the first time that you grew up with and watch their minds get blown, which is probably the seeds that were planted that have gotten me where I am today on this crazy journey. We do have uh, plenty of time and time for questions from the audience. I have a question about what we can do from our side of the handshake on the buyer side of the handshake. What can we do to inspire the next generation of farmers to be able to make the sustaining system? I think the best thing you can do is feed that to, the, to, to as many people as possible because once you taste it, then you can't live without it. It's like a, then I guess supply and demand will kick in. I've, and I've, I've watched it happen in the low country. I mean, when I came back there in 2006, I had to plant my own garden in order to taste these things. And you go back there now and all these ingredients are on every menu because people have tasted them and their minds are blown. I don't think there's any other way to do it because if you don't have that reference point, then it's hard to invest anything, time or money, into something that you haven't, hasn't like hit you or touched you. Mine is kind of a personal question. My partner is a chef. Something that he often talks about or thinks about that's kind of an anxiety space for him is the idea of how do I have a family and still be a chef? As somebody who is a father, can you speak to that? That's something that terrifies me personally. Um, taking the last year off from the restaurant industry and it's been unbelievable. It's been amazing. I didn't realize how the rest of the world lived. <laughs> and um, I, I refuse to go back to the restaurant industry the way it was when I left it. And so in order to continue to practice my craft and to live in a place where I want to continue contributing to something I love, I'm rethinking the way restaurants are operated. And we are making every decision that we make based on this question, what's the stress level? And even if we have the ability to do something extraordinary, if it's too stressful, we're not gonna do it. That's a decision that takes a lot of courage to make. Um, that's a decision that took a lot of suffering to, to get to understand. <laughs> but we get to decide all these things. I think one of the great pieces of advice I've received lately is I was speaking to one of my amazing self-care gurus and I was like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I, I've been the chef for so long and, I've, and I'm always going to deal with this, this thing of the anxiety that's there, the stress that's there, the work hours that's there and all these things. I'm like, you know, I'm always going to be battling that. And that person looked at me and said, who told you that you're going to be doing that? Yes, I, I told myself that. <laughs> like, well, tell yourself you don't have to do that and create something else. Find a way. You have the power to do that. You're the master of that that universe that you create for yourself. And so for us, we're creating our own community. We're creating our own little, little world where we're focused on taking care of ourselves first and knowing when it's too much and understanding fully what our circle of competence is and what we're able to do as a restaurant while remaining happy and healthy. 
<laughs> I want to follow that up because uh, you you mentioned uh, self-care and gurus and uh, mental health comes up a lot. And you made, have made big changes in, in your life in the past uh, couple of years. You're sober now. I mean, you seem like you feel like you're a much better person for the choices you've made. But do you think you're also a much better chef? Without a doubt. And it's, it's a different kind of courage. It's a different way of understanding life and how easy it is and how simple life actually is and how we overcomplicate things in life. We overcomplicate things in cooking. The path of recovery in the, in the community, in the recovery world, has taught me that life is very, very simple. Life is very, very easy. Um, and you get to determine that. And so as I've started to learn how simple life is, it's made me, what's given me the courage to cook simple food, especially after having um, my first child, you start to come to a realization that all the things that you thought really mattered don't matter. There's only a handful of things that truly, truly matter. And if you can give it, give it all to those things, that fills you up, that's the only worth you need and you don't even worry about anything complicated anymore. Wow. I have read articles about your regimen, which seems pretty intense. Is it possible that self-care is as addictive as alcohol and drugs? <laughs> when, when you graduate rehab, <laughs> actually a graduation is pretty awesome. But you put forth your, your plan. Once, once you get back into the, into the world, what is your aftercare plan? And when I turned mine in, my counselor looked at me and said, Sean, I want your next tattoo to be the word moderation. <laughs> like, erase all 40 of these and pick two. <laughs> That's all you get. And so, yes, it is, because especially when you start to feel better and you start to like fully realize what you're capable of and if, if you have an addictive personality it, it can it can quickly turn into something stressful and that's something that um, I'm still trying to figure out but almost three years later I still I, I'm still trying to figure it out and uh, I'm all right with that. I know you're a musician and music enthusiast and music feeds our soul the same way food does I'm just curious if in your new adventures, especially with the young son, if you're going to be doing more with music in the future. We're doing some really neat stuff with music um, at the restaurant. Music is one of the reasons that I decided to make Nashville my home. I think as humans, we seek these things that nurture us and nurture our souls and make us feel safe and secure and comfortable. And music does that for me. If you look at, and art does that for me, especially folk art, but if you look at the great folk artists, the great bluesmen, and the great soul food cooks, it's all taking something humble, something unassuming, something simple, applying your um, intention to it, and creating something extraordinary for someone. And all those things kind of fit together for me, so the restaurant will have, will be set up as a folk art gallery. We're working on a really wild music element that I don't want to ruin the surprise for anyone. <laughs> Plus, I hope, I don't know if we can actually pull it off. <laughs> but yes, the music component will be unlike anything you've ever experienced in a restaurant, and I can't wait. When you go home and all this is over and you get a minute for yourself, 
What are you going to cook for your son? Having a son, and he's just starting to eat solids. Mm. It's made me realize how fascinating this idea is of the first foods that you eat, mm -hmm. like what you're referring to. Those become your first and strongest memories that get stored back in your subconscious. And so, of course, I overthink that. <laughs> and... Um, a month or two ago, I finally got the clearance from my wife to be able to start feeding Leo solid food. And you can imagine the pressures of like, <laughs> that I put on myself. It's like, what is this for? What's the first thing I cook for him gonna be? It's like, well, why don't I just do like, line up like 20 spoons, <laughs> 20, oh, like 20 different heirloom varietals oh. of squash. It's, <laughs> it's always a tasting menu with you. What period of time this one came into America? <laughs> I started with um, a Cherokee varietal of candy roaster squash that I happened to really, really love and peeled it. You know, this is my first opportunity to cook for my child, like to, to that transfer of, of love through food. I'm so excited about it. So, of course, I overdid it. <laughs> so, I, I went online and I found the most intense mesh screen that you can find. So surface area is the smoothest thing you could ever imagine. So I wanted his first texture to be very luxurious. <laughs> and so I, I cooked it in this crazy contraption that is called waterless roasting. And so you don't have to add anything, it roasts it on its own juices. And I put it in the Vita prep and then I pushed it through the Tammy and I tasted it and tasted and tasted it. And then it's like, all right, now I gotta feed it to him. And we turn the cameras on. And so he grabs it, inspects it, like smashes it. Yeah. <laughs> trying to clean it up all OCD. <laughs> Chefs don't be messy like this. <laughs> keep our stations tight and clean. <laughs> and he finally gets it to his mouth. And um, I've never seen anyone more disgusted. <laughs> he like shook his head like this and started gagging. <laughs> I've never felt more humiliated, more defeated. <laughs> and my wife's like, Leo, people pay him so much money to do this. <laughs> you realize what's happening here? And so, yeah, I was like, maybe if I just put a bunch of bacon fat in it. So I reached up, <laughs> I grabbed the bacon fat, whip it in, nothing. And then I go out of town, and my wife doesn't know how to cook. <laughs> which gives me value, which is great. <laughs> much needed. And so we buy these pouches, of like these organic vegetables, pureed and nothing else, and he loves them. <laughs> what is happening here? What is, ha what is in this pouch that I can't do? If anybody knows, please tell me. <laughs> But the first book, book um, tour stop was with Dave Chang, and we had a son like within 12 hours of each other, and same thing. So if Dave Chang or myself, <laughs> I don't know what else there is. And I wanted to know what your opinion was on how line cooks get paid and the culture around young people like me coming up in the industry and trying to build a, a life. It's a very complicated answer because I've been there. And I know exactly what you're going through, and I know exactly what you're feeling. When I was cooking, minimum wage was $4.25 an hour. 
um, and I had to work three jobs. And I would go to school from seven to one, and then I would work from two to one. And I did that and barely paid my bills. And it's getting better. I would say that it's most definitely, most definitely getting better. And the trick, the hard part is looking at it from, from both sides, looking at it from a business owner standpoint and looking at it with empathy from the perspective of, of the employees. And the only answer that I know is that the business owner just has to put less money in their pocket. There's, there's, I mean, I don't know any other answer besides charging more for the food, but then no one's probably gonna come to the restaurant because it's too expensive. And it's just this crazy vortex that goes around and around and around. And the only truth that I know is, I don't even know if it's the answer, but the business owners are just gonna have to take less profit. I don't know any other way to do it, which it's already a very slim, slim margin. Uh, it's already a very slim margin and it's tough to keep restaurants open. The perfect thing would be for us to be able to charge what we should be charging for the amount of work we do and the products that we use so that we can pay the farmers properly as well. But I honestly think we're moving in the right direction. I know in Nashville, where I'm at, most cooks get paid $15 an hour minimum. That's in dishwashers, $15 an hour. The most important thing to remember is we're all doing the best that we can with the tools we have, and that's all we can do. And you get to determine who your community is. You get to determine who you work for and eventually who works for you. And as long as you're surrounding yourself with wholehearted human beings, it'll all work out. I'm curious, you have a recipe in here that uh, was uh, inspired by a card you found from your grandmother. If you could go back and speak to older generations of your family and get one secret from them, do you know what that would be? The thing about Appalachian cooking and Appalachian culture and Appalachian cuisine is it's mostly undocumented. There aren't many, many books or documentaries that <laughs> truly tell, tell those stories. And so I would love to know more about my great-grandfather, who I recently found out, just crazy, by the way, that he owned and operated a grist mill. And then my grandmother worked at that grist mill. And I'm like, huh, don't you think you should have told me that a long time ago? <laughs> <laughs> do you not see what I do for a living? <laughs> that didn't strike you as... <laughs> I would love to know... I would love to know more about that. I would love to know more about the Cherokee side of my, of my heritage. And those things I may never even truly know because they weren't written down. And that's really feeding my obsession with recording all these things and, and gathering as much of this, this knowledge and wisdom and stories as possible. You're obviously on the beginning of this movement, but who should we be watching under you coming up through the South? One of my favorite things about my journey in being a chef is watching people who walked into my kitchen with the same level of curiosity in their eyes that I did when I walked into kitchens and watching them become way better chefs than I'll ever be. I mean, it's just the most wonderful, wonderful thing. It's, it's, almost, it's hard to describe, really. The work that Jeremiah is doing at the Dabney is really, really important. There's so many people like him that are insanely passionate and have come through um, these, these old school kitchens and are now taking the opportunity to create their own cuisine in their own places. They're everywhere. Every city I go to, I love looking at the demographics and the racial compositions and 
and looking at the history of the people who have come to the different places at different times and seeing how that affects the cuisine. I had an amazing meal at June Baby last night, by the way. Uh, you know, I have to say that even though you're embracing moderation now, we're all very lucky uh, that you have been obsessive uh, up until this point uh, in pursuing and championing Southern food in both Heritage and the New Book South. I would say that despite uh, the tattoo of moderation, you really put it all out there on the page, and it's a tremendous book, and you're doing a tremendous service both to your region and to the food world in general. Round of applause. Many thanks to Sean Brock for visiting us in Seattle, to Warren Etheridge for leading the conversation, to the Fremont Abbey for sharing their space, and to Artisan Publishing. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of South and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of South and many of the other featured books on the podcast, so be sure to get one of those while they last. And they do make really nice holiday gifts. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.